0: From the studio of KPSU Portland, in an association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Music
1: itself became a way to reify the sense of identity, the sense of humanness, the sense of cultural creativity that could be continued even under the worst possible conditions.
0: Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Joshua Justice.
1: And I'm
2: Ryan Wisnor.
0: The Holocaust, or as it's referred to by many Jewish historians, the Shoah, was the systematic attempt at the extermination of the Jewish people, as well as other groups deemed undesirable by the Nazi regime. While Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler have been the subject of numerous books, documentaries, and works of fiction, the experience of the Jewish people during this period has received considerably less attention.
2: When discussing the Holocaust, the word resistance is often associated with violent struggle. Yet resistance took many forms among the Jews who suffered under occupation by Nazi Germany.
0: There's one form of resistance that until recently has slipped beneath the radar of many scholars, music. While pre-war songs remained popular and were heard in the Jewish ghettos of Europe, the onset of the Holocaust also gave rise to new compositions. These new works centered around the latest news, rumors, and at times were based on the personal losses of the performers and writers.
2: In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, we interview a historian whose research has focused on the social and cultural history of Eastern European Jewry and modern European Jewish history. Our guest today is Nathan Meyer. Professor and Chair of the Judaic Studies Department at Portland State University.
0: Natan holds his Ph.D. in Jewish history from Columbia University and teaches a number of courses at Portland State University, including an in-depth study of the Shuttle, the Jewish market town of Eastern Europe, and a history of the Holocaust. We'll be discussing Jewish resistance to the Nazis and the forms that resistance took.
2: We'll be looking closely at the role of music as a means of retaining cultural identity, transmitting information, and boosting morale. We will also see how this resistance is being remembered and documented today. Welcome, Natan. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Perhaps it's
0: best to begin by having you explain some of the fundamental differences between the camps and the ghettos
1: that the Nazis set up. Sure. Well, the concentration camp system was set up already at the very beginning of of Nazi rule starting in 1933 and for the first years of its existence uh, was intended not for Jews, but for uh, other people considered enemies of the Nazi state, political dissidents, groups who were called asocials, uh, who were considered to not fit into Nazi society in some way or another. Um, And, of course, Jews began to to be put into concentration camps, mostly during the war. The ghettos were a different phenomenon altogether. Uh, They were urban concentrations specifically for Jewish communities mostly in eastern europe there were a few examples outside uh, of eastern europe outside of um, of poland and the occupied soviet union and the baltics but they were mostly there in eastern europe uh, and those began to be formed pr- relatively soon after the nazis conquered eastern europe they decided to uh, to concentrate the jewish population in in medium and large sized towns and in the the big cities and the ghettos took various forms. Some of them were sealed off from the outside population. Some of the borders were more porous and people were, were able to, uh, to, to move in and out to some extent. Uh, but for the most part, they were more or less large open-air prisons um, where, uh, where some aspects of ordinary life could continue in some form. Uh, unlike the camps, which were basically prisons as we, as we know them today, the ghettos might have looked like a, a slum or a, a city or a town, but certainly people were, were not permitted to exit uh, on their own. And the Nazis basically communicated to the leadership of the ghetto that they put in place what it is that they wanted done with the Jewish population in the ghetto. So it made it much easier for the SS commanders to deal with the Jewish population for a time that was mostly slave labor in many of the ghettos. And then, as we know, eventually that led to deportations to death camps. And
2: the conditions within the ghettos, I wonder if you could adjust a little bit more specifically how the location or the specific administrators may have varied or how specific ghettos that you've studied differed.
1: There is a, a, a pretty wide array uh, of ghettos, and it really depended on the particular SS commander who was in charge of, of a given ghetto or another. There's one particular very well-known case of the city of Lodz, or in, it's pronounced in Polish Wuj, where there was a, a very large ghetto, and that ghetto survived in some fashion until 1944. That was the absolute latest that any ghetto uh, was allowed to remain. and. That was more or less because the uh, the commander who was in charge of that ghetto was getting all kinds of kickbacks from the forced labor that was taking place there and the, the products that were being created in the ghetto industry, and it was in his best interest to, to keep some people alive. Of course, most of the people had been murdered by, by 1944. Um, and and uh, Other ghettos, as I mentioned, were totally sealed off from the surrounding population. Lodz was an example of that kind of ghetto, and the smaller ghettos in smaller towns Sometimes they were just a a few blocks of of houses where the Jews were were forced to live and people were able to to go in and out a little bit more easily. In general, one could say pretty accurately that life was terrible in all of the ghettos across the board because the general policy was to limit food rations that were, that were permitted into the ghetto to a starvation level. So even though sometimes slave labor was exacted from the population, in general it was a regime that meant that people were going to succumb to either starvation or disease within a matter of years, if not months.
0: So... Let's talk a little bit about resistance. The Hebrew word amida can be translated as standing up against, and Israeli scholar Yehuda Bauer has used this term to describe both armed and unarmed resistance. I think most historians are aware of some of these instances of armed resistance, um, for example in the Warsaw Uprising, but both Bauer and you have made the argument that nonviolent resistance was just as important. What are some of the ways people were nonviolently resisting?
1: Well, first of all, I should, I should point out, just for the sake of clarification, that I make that argument when I'm teaching my Holocaust course. But since this is not my own field of research, I tend to rely on scholars like Bauer uh, and the pioneering work that he's done in this field in order to, to try to bring these ideas to, uh, to my students. But certainly there's been a revision in, in the understanding of what resistance means over the past few decades. I would say in the, the two or three decades immediately after World War II, the general understanding was that resistance meant armed resistance, meaning the, the uprisings in some of the ghettos and the partisans, and that it had been, although important in a symbolic way, was really very limited in its impact, and that most of the Jews in Europe who had gone to their deaths without any kind of fight, without any kind of resistance. Uh, The recent rethinking of what resistance might actually mean, if we broaden its definition, as Yehuda Bauer has suggested, uh, would be to try to fully understand the threat that Jews faced in Europe, especially living uh, in the ghettos in Eastern Europe, which was basically a struggle for everyday existence and indeed for one's own humanity, because the conditions of the ghettos were so dehumanizing. We know from testimony uh, and from diaries that we can read in the ghettos that because of the starvation that was imposed upon them, people would sometimes lose pieces of their own humanity. Their relationships to their loved ones, for example, might change because all they could think about was where the next crust of bread was coming from. So in the face of that kind of oppression, in the face of that kind of persecution, it's important for us to think more broadly about what resistance might mean. And in that case, it might not only mean rising up with arms against the one who persecutes you. But in any way that you can try to undermine the attempt to take away your humanity, to take away your culture, your life, anything, anything that really makes you up as a person— any of that can really be resistance, and that's where we get into the whole field of cultural resistance with music and theater and other forms of the arts. And historians also talk about education as resistance and what we might call self-help, so welfare organizations that were established in various ghettos um, that where ordinary Jews would organize committees to help the, the most needy. Obviously, everyone was needy to some extent, but to help the elderly and the sick and the most frail. And if we, if we try to think about resistance in slightly different ways, we'll see that there, at least historians like Bauer argues, we'll see that, that there's really much more that we'll find.
2: Hmm. What struck me uh, from what you just said is that the total assault that the Nazis had on the culture of the Jews in the ghetto we introduced earlier the topic of music can you speak to how music was a form of resistance
1: well i think it's important to understand that first of all the Jews across europe and also specifically in eastern europe who were targets of the nazi onslaught were very very varied in their own uh, their own identity and their own cultural modality so many of them were traditional Jews who people often see as the stereotype of the, the Eastern European Jew the Jew of the shtetl the small town before the war but there were also many Jews who uh, who were not traditionally religious who were secular in their orientation who were integrated into or let's say relatively integrated as much as was possible into Polish culture or into Hungarian culture for example and that's why when we talk about Jewish music during the Holocaust we have to again be very, very broad in our definition of it because certainly the uh, native language of most of the Jews in Poland was Yiddish, and that, that Yiddish is the um, the Germanic language that migrated with Jews during the Middle Ages from Germany to Eastern Europe and then developed from there. And it has elements of Hebrew and Slavic in it as well, but it's mostly a Germanic language um, that's written in Hebrew. So most Jews spoke Yiddish, but they were strongly connected to uh, to other cultures as well, and there were all kinds of influences on on Jewish culture in Eastern Europe, from Poland, from Polish culture, from Western Europe, from America, and in some ways also from the Zionist community in Palestine. So it was, a very, uh, it was it was a very complex and a very rich community, and the reason I'm giving that introduction to it is because the music itself tends to be quite complex. We're going to talk about this genre of music called the Yiddish tango.
3: One
1: might not necessarily expect for tango to have been very popular among Jews in Poland in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, Usually when we watch films, uh, if one does at all, about, um, about Jews in Eastern Europe during that period, the soundtrack is usually klezmer music, which some people say it sounds like gypsy music, the traditional clarinet and violin-centered uh, music of the Jews in Eastern Europe. But by the 20th century, they were very open to all kinds of musical influences. And so the resistance that we find in the, in the ghetto um, can include orchestras, bands. Um, as you guys mentioned in your introduction, there were poets composing new songs, with new lyrics, sometimes reworked lyrics from before the war. They had to rework them to adapt them to the new circumstances in many ways. So music itself became a way uh, to talk about and to reify the sense of identity, the sense of humanness, the sense of cultural creativity that could be continued even under the worst possible conditions.
0: You touched briefly on this um, a few questions ago, but I kind of wanted to have you shed a little bit more light on why maybe resistance was more common in the ghettos than in the camps.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, the, the The ghettos were in general um, more uh, conducive to to resistance, any, any form of resistance, because they were less policed than the concentration camps were in the camps. You live. You were divided by gender. You lived in barracks. Um, you had uh, you had SS men and the the capos who were the prisoners who were given some form of authority in the camp itself, watching over you all the time. In the ghettos, by contrast, the Nazis tended to stay outside. Um, they didn't really want to have much to do with the ghettos. They were considered places of uh, that bred disease, which which they were, of course. From the Nazi point of view, it was because the Jews were naturally a diseased race. And from the realistic point of view, it was because the conditions in the ghettos were such that that diseases spread like wildfire simply because there was very poor sanitation, people were in poor health anyway, very, very crowded conditions, and and so on and so forth. So the Nazis tended to stay outside. They set up a Jewish leadership to deal with all of the internal affairs of the ghetto. Now— there was also very often a Jewish police in the ghetto, which was meant to enforce the the regulations in place so it, it's not to, I'm not trying to suggest that anything was possible in the ghetto. But at the same time, there was more freedom to undertake all kinds of cultural activities, the kinds of welfare activities I was talking about before. Some of those were sometimes illegal, and people had to go underground and do them in secret. But in general, it was easier to do those kinds of things in, uh, in the ghetto than it would have been in, in a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I want to stress that there was, a, we also have evidence that there was music in concentration camps and there were there was resistance of other kinds. People, uh, amazingly enough, sometimes even managed to keep diaries in concentration camps. One of the main problems here, from a historian's point of view, is that we simply don't know how much evidence we don't have. In other words, much of the evidence, the documentation that we would want to have from the ghettos and the camps has disappeared because it was destroyed when the people were deported when they were murdered the ghettos were often cleared uh, and any evidence that remained uh, was was destroyed along with the people so the evidence that we have now as historians of music and of all the other kinds of resistance that we're talking about, may only be the tip of the iceberg of what actually existed. And we have to try to reconstruct that on the basis of what little we have.
2: Mm-hmm. This may fall into the, the category, of the evidence that we don't have. But when you talk about music, what comes to my mind is that it's a collective activity and also that it often involves dance and it also involves volume. I wonder if you could just address those concepts of dance and uh, performance within the music.
1: Sure, I can. I can try to do that. Uh, the, the The music that I, my myself, am most familiar with in the context of the ghetto, uh, were it was the organized music. So in other words, as you said, a collective activity, so if we're talking about choirs or or orchestras or bands, it was a way for people to keep up morale and to keep also some sense of continuity with the normal life they had lived before the war. If they could keep doing these things, if they could keep playing, and if ordinary people could keep coming to concerts, then perhaps one might maintain some level of, of ordinariness among an existence that was of course, very, very unordinary. And there was, of course, again, you know, and, and as you said before, the question might overlap with this idea of the evidence that we don't have. So, there's probably a lot that we don't know. That a lot of music that we don't know that existed. Whether it was, you know, within the family, possibly when people were, were went out to slave labor, if it was permitted, there might have been been singing then. We know for sure that there was poetry composed in the in the ghettos that was also sometimes set to music, um, and there were some debates in some of the ghettos among the leadership. Over whether it was uh, appropriate in these horrific circumstances to permit concerts to go on, to permit theatrical performances, and there's a there's a document that we have from the the Vilna Ghetto. Today Vil- Vilnius is the capital of Lithuania. And then at that point, before the war, it was a Polish city, and that was a very important ghetto, also for the in terms of Jewish culture that was produced during the Holocaust. We know that there was a a debate about whether or not. The Jewish leadership of the ghetto, which was called the Jewish Council, should permit those kinds of cultural activities to go on. And the head of the Jewish Council said, "We may indeed be be looking at death every day because because they, they were because people were taken out to be executed at the ravines outside of the city almost every day. But at the same time, we have to try to maintain our humanity, to maintain some." some level of morale uh, lest we sink into utter despair so that was part of the the debate that went on i think that in ter- in terms of the volume question is very interesting it's not one i had i had thought of much before I think in most of the ghettos, musical performances were generally tolerated, so it wasn't really much uh, much of an issue. I guess if we would talk about music in the camps, then that would be a different story, of course. And And also the music in the camps sometimes played a propaganda role. We have stories of the Nazis pulling people out of the barracks or out of incoming deportations who could play an instrument and they put them in these bands and the bands would be required to strike up a German marching song in the morning as the slave labor teams went out to the fields and came back or even when deportations were arriving. And all of this was, was very cynical, obviously, right? It was meant to for propaganda purposes, but also to somehow shove it in the face of the prisoners, um, that, that this was a German camp and that, they, that everything was going according to, to German culture. Even the music itself uh, was kind of a, a cynical ploy in that regard. At the same time, there would be, if there was music in the barracks that people were singing, clearly that would have had to be done sotto voce, not uh, the volume there definitely comes into play because if people were, were singing, which we know that they sometimes did as a form of resistance, um, they would have had to do so quietly. Yeah. This
0: nonviolent resistance, and uh, specifically I'd maybe like you to speak towards music. What was the purpose of, of nonviolently resisting? I guess, what, what were the goals of singing these songs, writing new compositions? Yeah. Well,
1: I think there were, there were a number of different goals for the poets who were writing these lyrics. It was a way to express what it was that they were witnessing, what it was that they were experiencing in the mode that, that they knew best, uh, which was through poetry uh, and through song. And what's remarkable about, about some of these songs is how, uh, how f- free they are in some sense. Uh, one might expect songs that were written in the ghetto to be uniformly melancholic and, uh, and, and despairing and sad, both in terms of lyrics and in terms of music, but they're not. Many of them are set to, to, to a tango beat, which was very popular uh, before the war and very often the music itself, the rhythm of the music, the, the feel of the music is in very stark contrast to the, the lyrics, which are very poignant lyrics about uh, the loss of family members, um, about the loss of the life that one had before the war. You know, Very, very despairing. But of course the act of writing itself is somehow an expression of life and a commitment to life. So there's there's a kind of contradiction in terms right there, because we know that those, for example, who wrote diaries in the ghettos were somehow insisting on their voice being heard and perhaps had some sense of hope that someone somewhere down the line would read what they were writing even if they knew at some point if they came to the realization that they themselves would not make it out alive. So there's that commitment to keep living which I think is very important in the the writing of this music whether we're talking about the lyrics or the or the the melodies themselves. And there's, there's also, as I mentioned before, there's that continuity from before the war and a sense of we're still part of the outside world because what the Nazis tried to do to the Jews was to totally cut them off from everything uh, outside. One of the goals of putting them into ghettos was to basically divide and conquer, to get Jews and Poles, for example, in Poland, who had once had many different kinds of contacts to be totally, totally separate from each other, um, which meant that the Poles worried about themselves and and the Jews were basically all alone. The Poles were undergoing their own persecution, that could be called cultural genocide, and the Jews were obviously undergoing um, physical annihilation. So the fact that they attempted to isolate the Jews from the world around them was kind of a challenge to Jews in the ghettos who often responded by saying, we affirm that we're still a part of the world. We're still a part of Western society. Um, We're going to sing tango, and we're going to write lyrics that are modern and contemporary, and that's what they, at least some of them, continued to do. So it's quite remarkable when you think about the, the circumstances that, that they were living under, where every day was more or less a struggle for survival and for the next crust of bread or the next bowl of soup, that any of this was really able to take place. Yeah. As you stated
0: before, this music was occurring both in the camps and the ghettos and uh, all across Europe. But there are a few specific locations. Terezin, for example, located in German-occupied Czechoslovakia. It's been said to be synonymous with the music of the Shoah. And
1: so what is it that made Terezin special? Terezin is a very interesting example, a kind of a unique ghetto in many ways. Uh, it's, it's also known as uh, Theresienstadt. That's, that's what it was called under the Germans. In um, and, and Czech, it's called Terezin. Uh, if you go to if you visit Prague today, it's a very easy day trip to make. It's, it's only about an hour's drive outside the city. This was the main collecting center for all of Czech Jewry during the war. So most Czech Jews, the Jews of Bohemia and Moravia, were sent to Terezin before they were sent to Auschwitz or other killing centers. And it was also known as the old age ghetto. It was a kind of a privileged ghetto where German Jews who had been awarded medals during World War I, war veterans and, and other members very often of the cultural elite were sent. It was propagandized by the Nazis as a special place where the conditions were, were better. And in fact, a propaganda film was, was made that the Red Cross visited at one point and the Nazis put up a, a very good show As the name of the film goes, Hitler gave a town to the Jews. And because it was a center for members of the cultural elite, the arts played a very, very important role in Theresien. I want to emphasize that most of the people who went through this ghetto ended up in death camps. So it it was all a sham. But for the few months or sometimes the years that they spent uh, at the ghetto... Uh, there was a tremendous number of cultural opportunities available, actually both for adults and for children. That's one of the reasons why why the cultural legacy from Terezin is so rich.
0: So Vilna is another ghetto that comes up in discussions around music and the Holocaust. Can you maybe tell us why Vilna holds significance?
1: Vilna was a very, very important Jewish religious and cultural center actually for centuries. Um, it was known as the Jerusalem of Lithuania um, because of its importance in Jewish tradition. There were uh, there were many famous rabbis who lived in Vilna, and in the modern period, it became a center for some of the Jewish political movements that arose in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, especially for the Jewish Socialist Party, which was called the Bund. It was also a, a center for Yiddish culture, meaning the secular culture in the Yiddish language that emerged right around 1900, more or less, and flourished in the 1920s and the 1930s. And that's why Vilna is also often pointed to as an example of the flourishing of Jewish culture that one can see in in certain places during the Holocaust. Having said that, I think it's also important to point out that there was probably Jewish cultural resistance in many different places that didn't necessarily have the same kind of burnished cultural legacy that places like like Vilna did. There was probably music that we can point to and other other kinds of cultural resistance in many ghettos across Eastern Europe. And we tend to we meaning historians or people who are who read about the holocaust tend to be familiar with the largest ghettos and the most famous ones like for example Theresienstadt Warsaw Vilna Lodge, the one that I mentioned earlier today, but there were hundreds if not thousands of smaller ghettos. And sometimes we know actually very little about what took place in a given ghetto because we just don't have the historical documentation that we would need to reconstruct what happened there. Um, So we can extrapolate very often. Uh, But the sense one gets after reading the scholarly studies of these ghettos is almost that everyone was was unique in its own way, which is Fascinating, given that um, th- that there were so many of them, and this took place in such a short period of time. I mean, after all, the first ghettos were established in early 1940, and most of them were, to use the Nazi term, liquidated. Most of, meaning most of the Jews in them were murdered sometime in 1942. So they n- normally existed for no longer than two years.
0: One song to come out of the Vilna ghetto is titled "Freiling." Freiling
3: nem zu- Bring my
0: Would you be able to share with us the meaning of the word Freling and of the song itself?
1: Sure, I can, I can try to do that. Um, Freeling is spring, and this is by a poet from Vilna uh, by the name of Shmerke Kaczerginski. It's a very, very poignant poem because obviously the title, spring, brings to mind optimism, sunshine, you know, w- w- wonderful things in life. And yet we know that he wrote the song after his wife, Barbara, had died in the Vilna Ghetto. And he talks about roaming through the ghetto without being able to find any kind of, of haven, any kind of, of respite. And he talks about the blue sky, which is illuminating the place that he sees, and yet he has to beg for a little tiny bit of sunshine. And the fact that it's set to tango in some ways makes it even more 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 paradoxical and more poignant because I don't think we'd necessarily expect a poem like this, a lament, to be set to tango. Yet it is, for whatever strange reason. And for me, it's, uh, he, he was, in general, a great poet. And the poetry that he wrote in this circumstance was, to my mind, even greater simply because he was, he was able at all to sit down in this circumstance and to give voice to the tragedy that he and so many others were, um, were experiencing. It's quite remarkable.
2: Another song that touches on some of the complexities of life in the ghetto is entitled Moez Moez, which translates to money, money. Let's take a listen.
3: Now the Jew government here in ghetto land, they oppress us with heavy, heavy taxes. But in return, they kindly give us all the bread and saccharin we can stomach. I tell you, money, 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 honey. Money is the root of all things. Please
1: tell us, what is the story behind this song? This is a fantastic song, and when I play it for the course that I teach on the Holocaust, I usually get some surprised chuckles, uh, at the very least, from the students because it sounds like such a, an upbeat dance song, but it's really about corruption in the ghetto. Which, again, is surprising to many because one would think if all these Jews are cooped up together, imprisoned in one place, there must be a strong sense of solidarity and togetherness and communal feeling, which sometimes there was. But the problem is that the Nazis set things up in the ghetto so that Jews tended to go against each other. Because, as I mentioned before, the Nazis didn't tend to come into the ghetto or to interfere in internal ghetto affairs. They set up a Jewish leadership to carry out their demands, to carry out the Nazis' demands. And that meant that very often any of the conflicts that had existed before the war then carried through into the ghetto itself and into the politics of the ghetto, which meant that you often had people very resentful of the ghetto leadership, even though... Very often, those leaders had no desire to be in the position that they were in. Sometimes there were even Jewish communal leaders who had existed before the war who had refused Nazi demands to be in charge of the ghetto, and they had been murdered. So sometimes the existing ghetto leadership were people who just didn't want to be murdered right away, and so they assented, right? They agreed to serve in the Jewish council. But they also had to make order in the ghetto, and they set up a ghetto police, and there were taxes. And the the song, Muist, is basically about money and corruption and bribes and how life is hard in the ghetto, not in the words of the song, because of the Nazi leadership, but because of the Jewish leadership, which is very a very strange phenomenon. And yet something that we have to take into account when we're trying to understand ghetto life is that there was also, as I mentioned, these internal resentments about who could do what to whom and who had what was called protection. In other words, who was close enough to the centers of power, to the leaders, to be able to get an extra soup or a job that would give one some sort of protection from the elements um, or any of those things, right? Good housing. And if you didn't have those things, then you, you suffered even more than, than other people did.
0: Corruption seems, seems to be a popular subject. One I'm thinking of that you had exposed me to is a uh, fume derabet.
3: It
0: was corruption really the the main subject people were talking about, writing about the conditions, or was there a wider variety of topics? And of course you, you've mentioned that not all of these songs survived, many of them didn't, so working with what we do have to look at...
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting about the songs is that they really cover the range of experience in in the ghetto. Like as you mentioned the song von der Arbeit which means from work is a a lament about Slave labor um, and the the conditions that people underwent in that circumstance. Then we have these songs about the corruption of the ghetto leadership. We have the more personal songs about family and the loss of family members. There's an amazing song. It's also set to tango, strangely enough, which is about ponar, or, or ponari, which were the killing fields, the ravines outside of Vilna, um, where hundreds of thousands of Jews were murdered over the course uh, of the Holocaust. And it's a lament tracing the steps of the ghetto residents to Ponar. So it's kind of a death march, you might say. And yet it's it's set to a slow tango. And it's it's not a, necessarily a personal lament. It's a national lament. To, to quote the title of another very famous Yiddish poem that was written during the Holocaust, it's the lament of the murdered Jewish people. So there are these songs that are really epic in some sense, and they try to capture the experience of a group that is being snuffed out.
2: I'd like to transition into the legacy of the resistance of remembering this music. You mentioned earlier that those who wrote poetry, those who wrote diaries, were speaking to an audience maybe into the future. In that lyrics of the music or in what they were doing, was there evidence to you that they were
1: singing for the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it there could be a lot of answers to that question because on one level it seems to me that the writers of these lyrics and of the music were very much writing for their their time for for themselves for for their own audience and they were living in such a different and unique experience that one would almost think that they would have assumed no one else could understand what they were going through, even if the songs that they wrote got out to the outside world or survived beyond the war. But on the other hand, we know that there were, they were uh, people who wrote specifically so that those who came after them, in other words, those who lived after the war was over, whether they were Jews or not, they weren't sure that there would be any Jews left after the war, but they hoped that there would be. Um, They were writing so that people would have some idea of what Jews had gone through. There was uh, another attempt at cultural resistance, which I often talk about in my course, is the secret archives that the historian uh, Emanuel Ringelblum and his team put together in the Warsaw Ghetto over the course of a number of years, where they basically collected all kinds of documentation from the ghetto and ultimately buried it when the, the deportations to the death camp Treblinka began, hoping that someone would find it after the war so they would have a record of what had taken place. And I have to think that some of the, the people who were engaged in this kind of musical cultural resistance also were also thinking along the same lines, that this was documentation of what had taken place and that someone after the war would be able to understand something of what they had experienced through the poetry and through the music.
2: Yeah, my original question was was speaking to exactly what you discussed, like the long term, the future. But now, after hearing you, you explain, it, it also makes me think about the short amount of time that folks had in the ghettos and that the songs may have outlived some of the members who wrote them in the ghettos. And there was a passing on among the generations over the years that lived there. Is Did you find that from your, again, the evidence that you may not know, like the lifespan of the song, is it popular or did they have songs that were specifically popular for a little time within the community, but then faded as conditions changed.
1: I think that's probably true. Uh, t- t- we know that there were cabarets in some of the ghettos, strangely enough. So yes, there probably were places where people danced. Uh, and they danced to, to these songs, and maybe the, the, the lifespan of the ghetto itself was so short that even, you know, a few weeks could seem like months and months or even years. And so it's probably true that a song might have popul- might have had popularity for, you know, for a little while and then faded away and again part of the problem is that we we don't really we don't know what we don't have. So we only have what what survived the war and many of those songs gained a tremendous afterlife after the war. And luckily in the past I would say 15, 20 years, there's been an attempt by some Jewish musicians, both in Israel and in North America, to bring them back to a, to a new audience, which is why we have this uh, CD, for example, called Ghetto Tango, which was an attempt by the late Yiddish musician Adrian Cooper to try to, to bring to life the songs of the, of the ghetto. And another musician I would mention is Chava Alberstein, who's a very important Israeli singer who sings mostly in Hebrew, but also sings in Yiddish because her parents were from Poland. And she has also recorded the the songs of the Holocaust, some of them in Yiddish, some of them actually translated into Hebrew so that they would... Uh, reach a new audience of Israelis who don't understand Yiddish, but who would be able to understand the Hebrew. The other musician I mentioned, Adrian Cooper, did something similar because some of her lyrics she translated into English so that people could have a sense of what the original sounded like, what, what the meaning actually was. So certainly in terms of the, the afterlife of these songs, there's, there's something quite remarkable happening. Uh, and I would also urge listeners to look at the, the website, uh, which is called Music and the Holocaust, which uh, my colleague Shirley Gilbert organized uh, and coordinated, which has a tremendous amount of material, including recordings, uh, material about the songs, about the musicians, about the context uh, the, the ghettos themselves, and so on and so forth. And surely Gilbert's life work has been in, in many ways to focus people's attention on the role that music played in, in the Holocaust.
0: Kind of stepping back to what we originally began this conversation with, this idea of other types of resistance besides violent resistance, as this has sort of uh, worked its way into modern historians' understandings of the Holocaust, what steps are being taken to remember this nonviolent resistance? You spoke to some of the efforts to preserve the music, but how about on a, on a wider scale? You know, Is there something similar for perhaps some of these medical stations that were set up or
1: anything along those lines? It's a, it's a good question. I think the uh, the understanding that there was a broader... Sense of Jewish resistance is um, is moving slowly into the popular understanding, the popular sense of what the of what the Holocaust was. Very often, it's my historian colleagues who are enabling that to take place. Um, as for example, colleagues of mine who work on the Holocaust, on, a- on these aspects of resistance that we've been talking about. Uh, Sam Casso is one that I'm thinking of who wrote a very recent book about the archive that I mentioned a few minutes ago, the, the, the secret archive in the Warsaw Ghetto. But he also documents other resistance activities like the self-help organizations in the Warsaw Ghetto as well. And just the fact that there are historians who are going back to our, our documents, our sources, and trying to reconstruct that history is enabling us to now gain access to it for, for really, the, in some ways, the first time in a large sense. And that trickles down then into into popular culture. Um, I think that, that, for example, in Holocaust commemorations in the Jewish community that I'm familiar with, there's more and more recognition of and incorporation of these other forms of resistance um, not just, for example, singing the Partisans song, which was which is a, a song that was known for decades and decades and w- was very popular in Israel and here among Jews who wanted to commemorate the Holocaust because it was the song of the fighters, the 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 armed resistors, and and that was seen as uh, a way to show Jewish pride. And now that we have these other accounts of other kinds of resistance. I have a sense that those are gradually percolating into these forms of commemoration and that we're, we're seeing those in various ways. You can see them at various Holocaust museums where those kinds of resistance are represented more and more because very often the museums depend on scholars to um, to, to contribute their knowledge uh, as consultants to the exhibits and uh, you can see them also as I mentioned at various kinds of commemorations on on websites so I, I think that we're going to probably see, I hope that we'll see a lot more representation of this kind of Amida, right, the, the, the nonviolent resistance that uh, Yehuda Bauer talks about using that specific Hebrew term, um, which includes the cultural resistance we've been talking about, but also uh, also other forms of, um, of resistance.
0: It's been a real pleasure having you in the studio. Um, it's an interview I've wanted to do for quite some time. So I appreciate you coming down and speaking with
1: us today. And I'm glad we finally had the chance to do it. Uh, it it's, been, it's been a pleasure for me, too.
2: Thank you so much. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about the music in this episode on our show page at kpsu.org.
0: We want to sincerely thank our listeners over the past few seasons. Your support and encouragement has been moving. We hope you'll keep listening along with us, and if you'd like to help us out even more, there are a number of ways you can do that. Tell a friend, subscribe or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, we're on quite a few of the podcast networks, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Beyond Footnotes. We should come right up. You can find our past episodes on iTunes, on soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes, and of course at kpsu.org. Stay up to date about upcoming episodes on Facebook and Twitter. Signing off, I'm Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Have a great week.
3: Sie soll ich weitergehen, sie soll ich bleiben stehen, ich weiß nicht, wenn wo. Der kommende in grünem Mantele, er nimmt doch an.